Father, we do want your Holy Spirit to come to us and to help us to see what is true about you in your word. Father, take our hearts that are too often distracted and cold, make them focused and warm towards the things of God, sensitive to your spirit, hearing from you. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants is that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's second volume of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there is a chapter titled The Forbidden Pool. You might remember this point of the story where Frodo and Sam have been captured by Faramir. Faramir is the son and heir of the steward of Gondor. He's also this mighty warrior who is on the front lines of defending Gondor from, from Mordor. When Faramir hears from Frodo and Sam about what their errand is to take the ring to Mordor to destroy it, he immediately becomes an ally to Frodo and to his cause. But while they are meeting, Faramir's men discover that there is an intruder near their headquarters. It's the miserable creature Gollum. Gollum is there fishing and eating from the forbidden pool. And he's completely unaware that he's been surrounded by Faramir's archers who are ready to fill him with arrows and to kill him for trespassing. So Faramir and Frodo are looking on at a distance, and Faramir asks Frodo whether they should let their arrows fly and kill Gollum for daring to trespass their domain, or whether they should let him live. Everybody there, including Sam, wants to kill Gollum. They want that guy dead. But Frodo, he's the only one who took pity on him and who interceded on Gollum's behalf with Faramir to spare Gollum's life. The only problem was that somebody had to go down there and get Gollum. He had to come before Faramir before he could be, um, his life could be spared. So Frodo goes down to the forbidden pool. He appeals to Gollum. He says, there are things, there are, there are, there's dangers about you that are going to take your life. You have to trust me. And Frodo tells him his life is in danger. And he says, these are his words. He says, I will save you, but you must trust me. Gollum reluctantly follows Frodo, and as they're walking away from the pool, Faramir's men emerge from the shadows. They seize Gollum, and they bind him. Frodo's the only person who's had compassion on Gollum, and indeed, he's just saved Gollum's life. But Gollum interprets all of this in a way that's crooked and broken. His heart and mind have been so twisted that he doesn't see what's going on. On. He views Frodo as deceitful, and he views Frodo as trying to deliver him over to harm. And as they take him away, Gollum hisses at Frodo, and he says, Master, wicked, tricksy, and false. So Gollum appears before Faramir, and Faramir tells Frodo, take a knife and go release his bonds. And Frodo comes over with the knife, and immediately Gollum thinks Frodo's trying to kill him. No matter what Frodo does, Gollum views Frodo as a deceitful and a conniving enemy. He cannot and will not see Frodo for what he is. The only person who's trying to lead him to salvation. 
And so as this episode unfolds, it becomes clear that Gollum's contempt for Frodo's actions is no discredit to Frodo's integrity and care for Gollum. On the contrary, Gollum's contempt is a sign of something deeply broken inside of Gollum. What would it do to our relationships if we behaved like Gollum towards each other? What would it do in my relationship with my wife, Susan, if I treated her that way? Let's say she's one night um, in the kitchen, she's just finished dinner, she offers to fix my plate uh, for dinner. I'm sitting at the table and she's putting my plate together. I can't quite see my plate because her body's in between me and the plate. And so I didn't see exactly how she prepared it. And so she walks over to me and she puts it down in front of me. And I say, what'd you do with this? You put some poison in this? You're trying to poison me, aren't you? I'm not eating this until you take a bite of it and prove that you're not trying to kill me. What would it do to my relationship with you if after church is over, I see you and you're out talking to a friend in the foyer after church, the two of you are visiting, and I walk up and I say, hey, y'all, what's going on? And they say, oh, we're just talking about the sermon. And I say, what, you don't like the sermon? Is it bad? You think it's a fit? You're trying to get rid of me, aren't you? You're plotting over here to get rid of me. You're trying to divide the What's wrong with you? Okay, so what would happen to our relationship if, if I spoke to you like that? Everything interpreted in a way that's twisted and broken and, and that assumes the absolute worst about you. Now, now, my words would not be an indictment of you, but they would be a sign of something deep, deeply broken inside of me if I behaved that way. You can't live in peace with someone who's constantly suspicious of you, as if you're constantly plotting some evil against them. It shows that they are paranoid and irrational. That broken thing inside of them will destroy your relationship and really drive away anybody who might ever get close to them. Now, this is very much what's going on between Paul and the Corinthians in our text this morning. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. And we're going to be focusing on verses 11 through 21. Now, since the beginning of chapter 10, Paul has been confronting the congregation in Corinth about their adherence to false teachers. These teachers have called Paul's integrity and gifting into question in order to elevate themselves and to assert themselves within the congregation. Paul says, he's already said this, we've read this in uh, chapter 11, verse 13, that these, these men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Even though that's what they are, the Corinthians are listening to them, and so Paul is writing to them trying to reassert his own apostolic bona fides with the congregation in order to get them reconnected to Christ. Because if you get disconnected from the apostles, and here Paul is their apostle, you get disconnected from Paul the apostle and his message, you're disconnected from Christ. So he's trying to get them reconnected to Christ by getting them reconnected to, to him. But still, there's evidence that under the sway of these false teachers, they remain skeptical of Paul. 
And so Paul's burden in this passage is to clear away some of the misinformation about Paul that had, been, that had taken root in at least some corners of the congregation. Now, that Paul does this is not evidence of any lack of integrity on Paul's part. It's evidence that something deeply broken is happening in, inside at least some of the Corinthians. That they would look at the, their apostle, the guy who evangelized them, brought them to faith, and they would be basically saying to him, you're wicked, tricksy, and false. And so in three paragraphs, Paul confronts three lies that the Corinthians are tempted to believe about Paul, but that were not true about Paul. And so what, what, what are these three lies that he's confronting? Here they are. Number one lies that he's inferior to the super apostles in verses 11 through 13. Number two, that he's after their money. That's in verses 14 through 18. And number three, that he's trying to save face. That's in verses 19 through 20. So three lies Paul's confronting that the Corinthians have been tempted to believe. Number one, that he's inferior to these super apostles. Number two, that he's after their money. And number three, that he's trying to save face. So the first lie that he confronts is that he's inferior to these so-called super apostles. Everybody look at verse 11. I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, you'll remember he's already referred to the super apostles back in a previous chapter. He's using that phrase sarcastically. They're not really super, okay? But think about what's going on here. Paul has just narrated all of these sufferings that he's undergone as a part of his ministry in chapter 11. He's narrated in the first part of this chapter the extraordinary journey to third heaven that he's taken and his thorn in the flesh. All that happened in the first part of chapter 12. All of these experiences in one way or another testify to his authenticity and faithfulness as an apostle. And yet he says that this whole narrative that he's had to weave before them, he says it's foolish. You've made me foolish for having to talk to you this way about all of these experiences of mine. The question is, is in what way is it foolish? Now, if, if I go over a cliff of paranoia and accuse my wife of trying to poison me, how is she supposed to respond if she loves me? If she loves me, is she going to say, well, I'm out of here, go get a new wife? No, she's not going to say that. She's going to try to reestablish trust with her wayward husband. I mean, she's, that's, that's what she's going to do. She's, if she loves me, she's going to go out of her way. She's going to try to say something like, no, dear, I didn't, I didn't try to, to poison you. Haven't you known me for nearly 30 years? Do you remember we went to college together and went to the praise band together? You remember me ever trying to poison anybody? I never tried to poison anybody when we were in college. Do you, do you know my family, all my friends for these last three? Has anybody ever said anything about me trying to harm someone else? In other words, she's going to be making appeals to her character in our past relationship. She's going to be citing evidence. 
And she's going to have to bring forth the witness of her experiences and of our own lives together to refute the crazy notion that, however, that it's gotten into my head. And in doing so, it will feel foolish. It would be embarrassing if a third party were to, were to be able to listen to her to have to defend her own character to her own husband of 22 years. It's a foolish and embarrassing, even if necessary, kind of account to have to give to yourself to somebody that you're so close to. Do, do you feel the dynamic here that Paul is dealing with as he's writing this letter? That's the dynamic that Paul has with the Corinthians at this point. This is why he's saying, I've been a fool. He's essentially telling them that it's crazy that he's had to write to them like this and defend himself, bring up all of this stuff about their experience together and about his own experiences in ministry. But he says in verse 11, you forced me to it for I ought to have been commended by you. Paul says, you forced my hand in this because of your behavior. I don't want to have to talk about myself like this. You forced me into it because you didn't speak up for me when these false teachers came in, perverting the gospel and denigrating me. The false teachers come in, slander Paul, and the Corinthians stroke their chins and say, hmm, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we need to hear their perspective. Maybe we should give some consideration to what they're saying. And Paul says, no, you should have defended me and commended my ministry and my gospel. That's what you should have done. And now you forced me to talk in a way that's embarrassing because of your infatuation with these false teachers, imposters. So he says in verse 11, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So when he's referring to these false teachers as super apostles, he's being sarcastic. They're not really super apostles. They just think they are. When he says, I'm nothing, he's just being humble. He really is an apostle. He's speaking like he did in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 9 through 10. Remember this, where Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You know, Paul's own view of himself was that he was the least of the apostles. He, he just didn't have an inflated view of himself. It was always a marvel to him that the Lord had mercy on him, that the Lord, whoever, it didn't matter who was the biggest sinner in the world. Paul kind of always felt himself to be that and that he would be called an apostle. It just laid him low. So you got Paul, a real apostle, kind of laid low by the grace of God. And then these super apostles who are so infatuated with themselves, they're blown up in their so-called ministry amongst the Corinthians. And so when Paul calls himself a zero, he says, I'm nothing. And then he says he's not inferior to these other guys. He's basically saying, okay, if I'm zero, they're less than zero. And then he brings in the hard evidence. Look at verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. It's embarrassing that he has to bring this up, but he's bringing up what happened when he ministered among them. If you go back and you look at the book of Acts, when Paul founded the church in Corinth, it, it doesn't record all of the signs and wonders that Paul performed among them, although there is a reference to the supernatural vision that he had of Jesus. Remember Jesus telling him to stay in the city. 
But we do know from that account, or from, from elsewhere, not that account, that Paul engaged in these kinds of miraculous works in his mission among the Gentiles. So, for example, Romans chapter 15, verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. What did Christ accomplish through him? Verse 19, in, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. He's preaching the gospel, but it's coming with signs and wonders we're, we're in all these different places that he's going. And then concerning his ministry in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 4 to 5, he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Same word there, power for miracles. And a demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul did miraculous works amongst the Corinthians when he first preached the gospel to them. He did the works of a true apostle. And yet they still... Even after having seen all of that from Paul, they are still being led away by these imposters who have come into the church after Paul left Corinth. And so he says in verse 13, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Verse 13 is probably reflecting an accusation leveled against Paul from some in the congregation, that somehow he favored other churches over the Corinthians. Paul says, show me the evidence of this. Where's the proof of this? He tells them to back up their claim, but they can't because it's not true. So he says kind of sardonically, unless the fact that, you know, that I didn't burden you, which means I didn't accept your money. That's what he means by I didn't burden you. I didn't accept any kind of monetary support from you. Unless that was somehow, you know, some kind of a, a problem for you, you know, please forgive me for this great sin of not taking your money. You can see there's, he's being sarcastic with them here. But the bottom line is that there's nothing about their relationship to Paul that's to suggest that he's somehow inferior to these guys who are acting like super apostles. Nothing whatsoever. If that is the case, then neither he nor his message are discredited. But the false apostles, the false teachers are. Don't let God's powerful work through the Holy Spirit get eclipsed or minimized in your life by imposters and false gospels. The gospel that saved you is the same gospel that's going to sanctify you and see you all the way through to glory. Don't get led astray to other messages or other teachers promising you the next better, shinier thing. Don't listen to those other teachers promising you things that are better than the new birth, the word of God, salvation, substitution, justification by faith. Don't listen to other teachers who are coming to you and trying to take you away from the message that you have received. Those people are liars and thieves, and they're not going to help you in the end. 
Ultimately, they're going to hurt you. And so you have to remain vigilant against them. And then, and then also, let me say this. Don't let the faithful testimony and character of those who brought you to the faith get called into question by Johnny-come-lately imposters. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, writing to Timothy, and he's writing to Timothy in the context of false teachers that are about, telling Timothy, you can't get drawn away. They're going to be there, but you can't get drawn away. He says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what the false teachers are going to do. They're going to deceive people because they themselves are deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Who did Timothy learn the faith from? Two women, Lois and Eunice, mama and grandmama. You continue in the things that you have learned because you know mama and grandmama and you know their character and you know that their lives bear witness to the truthfulness of this message and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Not only is he telling Timothy to be grounded in the scriptures, but he's also telling him to remember the faithfulness of the women who taught the faith to him. Their faithfulness and love bear witness to and adorn the gospel. So if somebody comes along, Timothy, denigrating the message of those faithful women, Timothy, that's when you get your back up. And I'm going to say to you, so it is with you. So I'll say this to the children in the room. Children of faithful Christian parents. Not everybody gets faithful Christian parents. If you're a child in here and you have faithful Christian parents, at some point in your life, as you go along, maybe when you grow up and get into high school or college or whatever, somebody comes along in your life and calls into question the gospel that you learned from your faithful mom and dad and they start telling you that your mama and daddy are benighted and that they don't know what they're talking about, all the warning lights in your conscience should be going off. Whoever talks to you like that about faithful Christian parents is a wolf and an imposter. And what I just say, said to children, and we could say to anybody in here who has faithful Christian witnesses in their lives, maybe a parent, maybe a pastor, maybe a friend. When people come along and begin calling that into question, you remember what Paul says, knowing from whom you have learned them. And you stand them down. You don't let anyone call that integrity into question. So the first lie that he confronts is the idea that he's inferior to the super apostles. Second lie is that he's after their money. Everybody look at verse 14. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. Now this has to be one of the most beautiful, fatherly, loving expressions in, in all of the Bible. 
Paul's saying to them, I'm coming to see you, but I'm not coming because I want something from you. I'm coming because I want you. Now, you can hear the fatherly tone in this, but you can also hear an implicit critique of the false teachers in that statement. The super apostles, they want their money. They will take all their wealth and hard-earned goods and call it being a sign of an apostle. Paul's saying, I don't want your stuff like these guys do. They'll take your money. I'm not taking your money. I just want you. I want to see your souls prosper and to grow in Christ. John Chrysostom, when he comments on this text, he says, Paul, what Paul means is, I seek greater things, souls instead of goods, instead of gold, salvation. That's exactly right here. Paul compares his relationship to the Corinthians as a father to his children. He's not talking about here how children need to care for their aging parents. Okay, Obviously, that is appropriate. That's not the point here. He's talking about the natural order of things with parents and dependent children. That's what he's getting at here. What's the natural order of things with parents and children? Able-bodied parents are supposed to provide for the needs of their children. Everybody knows that, not the children for the parents. Uh, Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but several years ago, oh gosh, it was 10 years or more ago now, the kids were all little in our house. Lucy wasn't even born. Kids were like six, four, and two at the time. Uh, Susan and I got the stomach bug at the same time. And she got up on a Sunday morning right before church and just felt horrible and couldn't come out of the bedroom and was there um, just very sick. And I'm like, I'll take care of you. And so I run off to the Walmart to get some Gatorade. And as I'm looking at the Gatorades, all of a sudden, (laughs) it hits me. So I come home. And we're both, it's just one of these terrible ones. It was one of these memory-making bugs. Um, I, I, I start shivering and getting this fever. Susan is just curled up and sick. And I, I can't get warm. I go outside and I sit on the front stoop because that's where the sun hits in our house in the mornings. And I'm sitting on the front stoop trying to get warm. And then going over to the bushes and holding forth... Uh, <laughs> And then coming and sitting back on the porch, and I remember one, some, par- some neighbors walking down the street. I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm laid out in the front yard and throwing up at the bushes. What do these people think has just happened here on a Sunday morning after a Saturday night? I don't know. But uh, I'm, I'm there on the front porch. Susan and I feel so horrible. We can't take care of the kids. We can't tend to the kids. And um, they're having to fend for themselves. Emily's in charge. She's six. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, you know, you got, we literally, and so I was laid out on the back porch for most of the afternoon. At one point, I came into the house, and Denny had dumped an entire box of Raisin Bran on the floor near the kitchen. And he was just going by and eating off of it. <laughs> And, uh, and I just walked by, I was like, that'll do. Uh, <laughs> it's totally fine for now. Later that day, you can, some of you guys remember the Echeverias. Miguel Echeverria comes by our house. He had mercy on us. He brought McDonald's for the kids. He puts it on the porch, he knocks on the door, and then he runs off, <laughs> getting out of there. But it was really pathetic that we could not tend to the kids for most of that day. It was about 4 p.m. before Susan and I began 
to kind of emerge from the violent fever and sickness. It was just really miserable. And it's funny in retrospect, we tell that story a lot, but it was not funny in the middle of it. And I'll tell you what, what else wouldn't be funny, what else wouldn't be funny is if we had let that arrangement of that day become the permanent state of things. Where we don't tend to the kids, care for the kids, provide for the kids, and we just, you know, tell them to provide for themselves. Go forage outside and around the neighborhood for food. No, oh, and by the way, go get us some too. They, you know, they come take your kids away from you for things like that. Why? Because parents provide for children. It's not vice versa. And Paul's telling the Corinthians that their relationship is like that. He is their spiritual father. He aims to provide for them as their father. He does not want them to provide for him. It's a kind of a, this, it's really a, an amazing thing here because he had a right to expect them to support his ministry. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He actually has a right to that. He's foregoing that right because, he, because of the relationship that he's trying to forge with them. You remember that he did not accept uh, making a living off of the churches that he served. Now, he would collect offerings for other churches. He might accept support from the Macedonians to minister to the Corinthians, but he's not taking from the Corinthians to minister to the Corinthians. You see what I'm saying here? And so Paul says in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Meaning, I, I will spend my money on you, but I don't want your money for me. Also, when he says, I will be spent for your souls, do you pick up what that means? I'll spend for you, but I will be spent. That means that he's willing to suffer for them to be beaten for them. The 30, uh, the 30, the 40 lashes minus one, right? He's willing to go through all of those sufferings that he narrated in chapter 11 for them, even up until the point of death. He will undergo any hardship because of his great love for them. That's how he loves them. Is he to be loved less by them? that they would listen to these imposters, forget their relationship, forget the gospel that saved them, that he brought to them, and that he's going to love them, they're going to love him less? Is that, is that what's supposed to happen now? Paul says in Philippians 2.17, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Meaning, I, I'm, I'm happy to suffer for the sake of, of your goodness in Christ. I'm happy to do this. That's the natural order of things as well, isn't it? The parents not only provide for their children, but the, the parents sacrifice for their children, not vice versa. Paul says in verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Somehow the Corinthians lost sight of all of Paul's sufferings and pouring himself out on their behalf. And somehow the idea got around that Paul was actually taking advantage of them. Apparently they were under the impression that even though Paul says he doesn't take their money, he's actually, that's a ruse, he's actually laundering their money through other means. You remember the, the benevolence offering that he's been taking up for the poor saints in Jerusalem that chapter 8 and chapter 9 we're talking about? You remember that offering? 
Um, it looks like maybe some of the Corinthians were thinking that he was surreptitiously taking some of that money for himself or that, it, or that that was his plan. You can tell that that was their suspicion by what he says in verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? And you remember those that he sent to him. He's already mentioned he sent Titus and some other brothers. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. You remember they were preparing the way for the taking up of this offering. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? In the original, the way that Paul asked that first question demands a negative answer. Did I take advantage of you? The answer is no. He's saying that he in no way took advantage of them by taking their money. Also, none of the fellow workers that he sent sent to them, took money for the purpose of giving to Paul. And Paul says, didn't we all act by means of the same Holy Spirit and walk in the same path? I mean, our ways have been totally open before you. Everybody can see the way we behaved. And there's no daylight between me and Titus and the other brothers I sent to you. Nobody's been taking advantage of you. But now they're suspicious. Oh, we can't see. So now you're, you're, you're introducing poison here now, Paul. There's no evidence of this anywhere. He's reminding them that he never took advantage of them. He never took from them. He only gave to them, and he would be willing to give his life for them if it came to that. So, so think about this. If you're a Corinthian and you've got this temptation to listen to these imposters, false teachers, saying false things, taking away allegiance to Paul, trying to take the place of Paul, and then you've got Paul over here, and you've got to make a decision. How do I know who the true spiritual father is of the congregation? Who it is that we should be listening to? How do you discern that? You remember that story in 1 Kings 3 about the two harlots who came before Solomon? Both of the women had sons that they were nursing. One of them rolled over on her son during the night and killed him, so she went and kidnapped the live baby of the other woman. She replaced her live son with the dead son, and they both accused each other. They came before Solomon, and they both accused each other that the live son is theirs and the dead son is the other woman's. And everybody's like, how do you get to the bottom of what, what happened here? And so Solomon says, bring me a sword. We're going to cut this baby in half, and the, both of them can take half a baby. And then the Bible says, then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king. For she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She's the mother. How do you know who the mama is? The one who loves him. That's how you know. It's not the one who wants to destroy the baby. How do you know who the true apostle is? It's the one that loves the congregation. Not the one that's trying to destroy the congregation. The one who's laying his life down and suffering for the congregation. Not the ones that are trying to aggrandize themselves off of the congregation. That's how you know who the true spiritual parent is in Corinth. All of you out here aspiring to pastoral ministry of some sort or any kind of Christian ministry. Here's a diagnostic question for you. Why are you aspiring to this? Why would you aspire to the office of pastor? 
Is it for the money? Hope not. Is it for the purpose of gathering a large crowd so that you can cash in on all the perks of being a megachurch pastor maybe? Is it to climb the rungs of ministerial success? Is it for the praise and adulation of man? If the answer in your heart to any of those questions is yes, you have far more in common with the super apostles than you do with Paul. Paul says he's willing to spend and to be spent on behalf of God's people. That means he's willing to walk the sometimes difficult road of being an apostle and a shepherd of God's people. Are you willing to walk that road or are you in it for something else? Paul is is modeling for us what it means to spend and to be spent for God's people. So the first two lies that Paul confronts is that he's inferior to super apostles and that he's after their money. The last lie that he brings up is that he's trying to save face. Look at verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Remember these these plurals. It's this apostolic plural. He's referring to himself. So have you been thinking all along that I've been defending myself to you? That's what he means here. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul wants to disabuse the Corinthians of another misperception on the part of of the Corinthians. That's the idea that he's defending himself in order to save face with the Corinthians. Paul is not writing to them all of this in defense of his own apostleship so that he can personally be vindicated and then be made much of by the congregation. The point of this defense is not simply so that they'll think highly of him. That's not the end point here. Paul says that he is saying all of this before them in the sight of God. And he says he's speaking in Christ, which means the same thing that it means in chapter 13 and verse 3, where Paul says that Christ speaks in me. This isn't some kind of a lame attempt at personal vindication. Paul is speaking the very words of Christ under the inspiration of the Spirit. Therefore, everything he's saying is for their edification and their growth, not for his own self-aggrandizement. Keep in mind... Paul is an apostle of Jesus. None of us are, can, can claim the exact prerogatives that, that Paul can claim, okay? This is a unique gift and office in the, in the church. He is a receiver of divine revelation. Jesus appointed him to be that. You get disconnected from that guy, you're disconnected from Jesus. So this is a big deal. And so he's trying to get them connected back to, to what's going to save them, basically. Why is Paul so concerned about building them up in the faith? Because he's genuinely concerned about them. Look at verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul's concern is that when he makes what would be his third trip to Corinth, that they will not be showing any evidence of growth in the spirit. He's concerned that they might be, it says, first thing, quarreling, which would be like engagement and rivalries. So strife, discord, that that's going to mark their fellowship. Jealousy, intense negative feelings 
towards another person's achievements or success, also called envy. Anger, that would be wrath, indignation, outbursts of anger that happen in relationships. Hostility, which would be strife or contentiousness amongst the people. Slander, the act of speaking ill of another person. Evil speech, defamation, that's slander. Gossip, where you're bringing derogatory information about someone that's offered in this kind of tone of confidentiality where you're whispering. Conceit, swell-headedness, pride. And then he's finally here, disorder, which would be just opposition to any established authority. It's unruliness. That's what he's concerned about. Notice he's not primarily concerned about how much the church has grown in numbers since he left. He's not concerned about how much each of them are giving so much. He's not concerned with the church's prestige amongst other civic institutions in the community. He's concerned about them, whether or not they are being conformed to the image of Christ. That has to be the primary concern of any pastor for a congregation. It's certainly Paul's concern. Why? Look at verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. You remember Paul already had a painful visit with them? Where he came to Corinth. After his first visit, he goes back. Somebody's there opposing him. He has to leave quickly because of a confrontation with them. Paul doesn't want another painful visit with them like the one he described in chapter 2 and verse 1. Because if they're still unrepentant of the sins he's already confronted them with, there's going to be a conflict. One that causes sorrow to him and to them. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to mourn over their sin. He wants to rejoice in their sanctification. And he's writing this letter so that by the time he gets there in person, they'll be strong and healthy and repentant growing in Christ. Evidence in this letter that some of them are already doing that, but also evidence in this letter that some haven't gotten there. And that's, that's the bottom line that he's trying to communicate to them. He's not inferior to the super apostles. On the contrary, he's the true apostle to Christ. He's not trying to get his hands on their money. On the contrary, he's trying to spend and be spent for them. And he's not trying to defend himself just to save face with them. On the contrary, he's trying to get them reconnected to Christ. And the only way for that to happen is for the congregation to be reconnected to him. Now, I wonder how many of you here this morning, how many of you similarly need to get reconnected to Christ by getting reconnected to Paul and the other authors of Scripture? You are always going to be facing in your life imposters who raise themselves up as rivals to your simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Those rivals are going to do everything they can to convince you in your flesh that Paul and the apostles and the prophets are boring and of no real relevance to your life. They're going to try to sell you on self-help, psychology, Pagan spiritualism, secular hedonism, all other manner of error. That's what's going to be constantly coming to you. 
But the common denominator out of all these various influences is that they're all going to be going to try to pry you away from Christ. And the primary way that they will do that is by transferring your heart and affections away from Christ's word. If they can just get you out of earshot of Jesus' voice, then they have you. If they can just get you out of earshot of Jesus and into earshot of these other influences, which means taking you away from the word and taking you to these other messages. The fight of your life is going to be about saying no to the rivals and yes to the word of God. And it's hard because we're kind of like the Corinthians. Corinthians had never seen Jesus themselves. They just had the message preached to them and they believed. But then the guy who preached to them leaves. He goes about his ministry and is gone for long periods of time. And so you're going to have this word of God delivered to you and the person that it's about And the person who delivered it to you is not there with you in person. And you're going to be tempted by other people who who do come in person and who do seem compelling. And you're going to have to say no to the rivals and yes to the word of God as we wait the return of the Lord. That's going to be the fight of your life. And when things go hard for you in your life, you can't turn around and look at God as if he's the source of your ministry misery or as if he's the problem or as if he left you as if he's coming after you to hurt you so that you're justified in turning to these other rivals and their messages when you do that you're not revealing any deficiency in God you are revealing a deficiency in your own character you are showing that there's something deeply broken about yourself when you begin to hold God in contempt like that you, you essentially play the part of Gollum, lashing out at the only one who's really loving you and trying to save you. And, th- and that's what we can't do. We have to maintain faith even while we are waiting for the return of Christ. Let me say this. Any of you here this morning and you're listening to this message and you have a sense that you don't know Christ at all. You're not a believer in Jesus. And if you, you may know um, that everything that you've done in your life is completely insufficient to commend you to God. If, if you know that, you're ahead of a lot of people, okay? Because a lot of people don't even realize that. They have a hard time admitting they're sinners. But the Bible says that we're all sinners. And because of that, we deserve condemnation. We deserve to be separated from God forever. But the Bible also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, shaking our fist in God's face in our sins, the Bible says that God sent his own son to the world, Jesus, to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross, to take our punishment, and then he rose him up three days later, so he's alive from the dead right now, seated at the right hand of God, And he offers eternal life to anyone, not who earns their salvation, but to anybody who would simply turn from their sin and trust in Christ. If you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, the Bible says that will connect you to all of the blessings of salvation. You will be connected to Christ by faith. You will have an inheritance in the age to come. If you haven't done that, you need to trust in Christ 
this morning. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use your word to sanctify your people. And I pray that you would use your word to save those here who have not yet confessed Christ. Father, let your word not return void. Father, help us to not believe the lies that are spoken against the word of God and against your emissaries, but help us to believe the truth. Help us to remain allied to it, come what may. We pray for all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.